The DIA is the only national professional body that champions the value of all design and the impact of our designers. Its purpose is to help designers prosper by providing knowledge, thought leadership, access and inclusivity. Head to design.org.au for more information about becoming a member of the DIA. The DIA acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, giving respect to Elders past, present and future as the continuous custodians of the land upon which the DIA National Office is located. We thank all continuing custodians of this land who share their wisdom and knowledge so that we may all have a better understanding of this place, now known as Australia. Neil County is a director of Neil County Architecture, a multidisciplinary practice that spans across residential, commercial, interiors and product design. Neil's signature touch is not a signature at all, but instead each project is approached from a unique perspective, resulting in an individual design response. From Perth in WA, we present Neil County. Hello, thank you. How are you both? We're great. And how is WA? We feel um, like we miss you. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We, we're feeling a little claustrophobic. We try not to think about the big picture if we can, but we're really enjoying our own state and feel very privileged to be able to go to the southern region for cooler weather or the, the very north of Australia. And we're all within our own state. So I think Western Australia, the good thing about this has been Western Australians have discovered where they live rather than flying out of here to somewhere else. So th that's been a positive thing. Yeah. And that it, it's very unique with Western Australia. You know, it has its own sense of place, a very strong sense of place, but you're so close to Asia as well as, you know, you're sort of halfway between the eastern states of Australia and then you're, you know, it's closer to Singapore than Melbourne. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, it's really uh, it's reinforced all the things that I've tried to stand for in, in later years of, of my work, which is having a sense of place. I get very frustrated by seeing the same sort of look rolled out time after time or something that's currently on trend rolled out regardless of where it is. And even in Perth, which is you know, a pretty young city in the whole scheme of things, each suburb has something unique about it. There's some history or there's something that's happened that you can draw upon. So that's, that's what I look for. And I, I sort of think this whole pandemic thing and our lockdown has sort of brought that up uh, as a bit of a talking point because people are discovering where they live and embracing where they are or what's around them more so than looking elsewhere for something more interesting or different or better. They're looking mm. inward. And do you think you've discovered your city within a sort of deeper context? Like I think of Tim Winton, who obviously writes from Perth, and uh, the idea of Perth hugging the Western Australian coastline, like looking to the west rather than to the east. Have you, you know, do you, do you think you have a deeper sense of your city? Uh, look, I think, I think I had that myself already, and that was something that I was really embracing. And, and we, you know, quite strangely not, you know, there are, I'm not the only person doing that, but there are so many that are not. It just astounds me. But for me, I think it's been more embracing the whole state, the city itself and the complexity of the suburbs and different areas and I was uh, sort of already onto. Although I must say that I did do a, a competition entry for uh, a new lodge building at Rottnest Island with my partner Susie. And um, in that, we were studying the geological history of Rottnest and back to the mainland, which just opened up a whole new world of you know, responding to where you are. We're basically on this whole limestone outcrop. Uh, and Rottnest is almost the most western point of the outcrop that was originally part of mainland. And then you scratch deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's just so fascinating. And it explains so much when you sort of really dig down to understand where you are. Yeah, I can feel like with your work and the way you talk, it feels like there's anthropology being woven in um, with people watching and, and observing as well as geology as well. It feels mm. like a really broad span. Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, it's all down to opportunity. So I've got all these things bubbling away looking for somewhere to land. Uh, and, you know, the right project, the right people has to be the right mix. I'm not going to force it where it doesn't belong. But, yeah, the opportunity to explore those things further, I'm really looking forward to. And unfortunately, we didn't win the Rottnest competition, 
because I thought architecturally our submission was really, really strong, but those things are not always about the architecture. It was it was really about the finance and the people behind the group who could deliver, um, unfortunately. But that was probably the, the sort of um, most successful integration of building and landscape and history of the geological history and then respect for uh, the local Noongar culture and song lines and all of that was all interwoven. Uh, and in fact, we weren't even really presenting a building. We were presenting a landscape that had buildings in that was really landscape first, building second. So, yeah, quite exciting things to explore. Did you collaborate with a landscape architect on that submission? Or yeah, was it a landscape architect on the team, Andrew Baranowski. And um, we had uh, we we're consulting with local uh, Noongar elders. And so we had a really powerful scheme. It was devastating that we didn't win it, but um, it was really one of its competitions are still, you know, that you progress even if you don't win because you've had an opportunity to explore ideas and develop the sort of thing I was talking about before bubbling around in your head. So, yeah, we came a long way forward after having completed the competition and our thinking and reinforcing what we wanted to do. Because mm. I guess competitions, you know, built from ideas that makes you form an approach to a project rather than answer a client brief specifically, you have to formalise what it is that you're going to do and how you're going to set about doing that. Do you yeah. approach all your projects that way? Well, you see, the thing about a competition is that you don't get opportunity for dialogue and that's the frustrating thing because, you you know, it's an idea that you put forward but that idea needs dialogue and then it gets pushed and pulled and whatever else. So I do find that the way I design or the way I think about things to come up with design solutions, I'm always looking for that connection as we discussed earlier with place or my client's own history or uh, ethnicity or whatever it is about them that's specific. But I can't start talking like that because people think I'm a mad person. I really need to, I need to deliver on their brief and I need to deliver on their budget because, you know, unlike us, we're, we're immersed in this world every day and then you start speaking to people outside our world and they are on a different planet to us or, or we're on a different planet probably. And you can't assume that you can start communicating with them as though I'm talking to the two of you. So you really have to sort of deliver why they've come to you in terms of they want a project that's to, to their budget and accommodates all the things that they want. And I usually find that when I've got to that point, they have confidence in me that I'm serving them for what they want. And then I say, by the way, when I design this, these things influence me. What do you think about that? And normally it's like a door's open to another world and they're going, oh, my God, like we never even knew this sort of thinking existed because they're not exposed to it like we are. And um, and then, you know, if they're engaging positively, which, in fact, I haven't had anyone not engage positively to date, then the snowball starts to roll and the story grows and more and more things come into the picture as we do design development and um and make projects more real. So that's where the fun is for me because each project then becomes something specific about this person or this location or the, the history of that and it becomes like a series of hobbies. So for me, you know, partners say, oh, why don't you get a hobby? And so I could do with less hobbies because every project has about 10 hobbies associated with it, so, and which I love. You know, it's not I'm not complaining about that. I absolutely love it. And um but that's the way I process things. So obviously you're in your studio, I imagine. Looks like yes. a studio. Yep. Yeah, it's my um, own personal space. So, like, uh, my partner in life is also an architect mm -hmm. and uh, we share the office building but we have separate businesses, so partner in life and rival in business. Nice. But, but this is my own space. So I've just um, really enjoyed collecting objects and whatever else as you can probably see in the background, I guess, yeah. Like a museum up there. Yeah, it is. I mean, they're all little influences. So I sort of collect images around projects and it's sort of like a history of layer of different projects. And then if there's prototypes or 
I can try to be inspired by nature. So I think I can't see what you can see there, but I can see a cockatoo. A, a grass tree sort of trunk. Yes. Which inspired something done previously and things like that. So I just like to leave those things around. So yeah. And we were talking earlier about um, the bravery of clients. Do you think that you you ask your clients to be brave or is it a question of trusting them trusting you in the process? Well, the best results come from when uh, there's faith in what you're doing. It doesn't mean there's not questioning and responding to, to different directions. Like I do think I had this conversation with a client yesterday actually because um, we're having to sort of move and shake to sort of get things approved by council and she was uh, struggling with uh, the sort of uh, the need to have an alternative solution to what we were doing because she had a heart set on where we were. I said when I started as a young architect I had one idea and I'd present one idea and if there's any variation from that one idea I'd get super pissed off and really throw in the towel and get all upset and then over time I realised that, you know, you'd start with an idea but that idea is only dealing with the parameters at hand when you came up with that idea. And as you evolve, there's more parameters coming into play all the time. So you need to respond to those, and that might mean that the idea gets pulled in a slightly different way. So don't be fearful of that. I've learned to embrace that. I can't say that sometimes I don't get pissed off still, but less, much less so than when I was a young guy. And uh, I've sort of learnt to embrace it and I find that often that gets much better solutions because it's just more, it's, it's richer in its sort of um, complexity of how it's come together. And do you find that often you, there's a seed of an idea, as you say, and then as you go through the process and the design almost unfolds, that as you participate with the client, collaborators your team that the idea becomes stronger and richer like how does that um push and pull happen yeah well um yeah depending on so i'll use an example this project that's under construction at the moment and um the site was a former petrol station and um you know you wouldn't normally think and, and there's a new house on this uh it was subdivided into three housing lots and I'm doing the one on the corner, very busy corner. And um, my client was the owner and operator of this petrol station for 30 years, it was an Ampol petrol station. Uh, and they're a lovely Greek couple who are moving from where they live in the outer suburbs of Perth to come and live back in Nedlands, which is sort of the heart of the western suburbs of Perth, where they're much loved because they provided a wonderful service to people, I've, every, everyone that lives in the area. I, I mentioned that I'm doing Stan and Anne's house and they're, oh, Stan and Anne, they're just fantastic people. So they're moving back into a neighbourhood where they're adored, which is just fantastic. But anyway, that this is a classic sort of example of how I delivered on budget and delivered on brief and then I opened the door to another world. They had no anticipation of where we were going with this. So I... When I visited them there in their house, they had these wonderful photos of their uh, younger family on holiday with them in Greece and the Greek islands and their um, Greek heritage. And um, so I suggested that we should embrace this. Um, and um, I'm not sure that they knew what I was talking about when I started that conversation, but they soon sort of understood what I was talking about. And it's a white on white on white house. It's not, there's nothing painted white. It's a beautiful chalky white brick and there's a beautiful white roof tile. And then inside there's this textured reconstituted fibrous timber board, which is sort of off-white and uh, whitewashed walls inside. But then the um, floor is a lime green terrazzo. Everything's just terrazzo everywhere, like very sort of European sort of way of doing it. But uh, that was the sort of Greek side of it. But then I was telling stories about the history of the service station. So the Ampol logo, which is sort of this oval-shaped sort of thing, had Ampol slashed across it. I sort of paired back the the logo to the graphic to be a simple sort of oval, and that was embedded in the um, formwork of the concrete for some external walls. So you've got this sort of like fabric pattern repeat. Um, and then that is, uh, and I've got coloured glass because they came to me wanting to use coloured glass. They'd see me using it elsewhere. 
And so we have this sort of petrol-like deep green coloured glass on the ground floor and on the upper floor sort of the shades of engine oil is the sort of thinking. And then the dining table is, again, in plan form, the shape of the uh, Ampol logo. And then there's two big circular legs which are like stacked car tyres. And I've just designed a letterbox which, hey, I've got it right here. I'll hold it up for you. The letterbox is um, inspired by the spring of um, a suspension wire. And so I've got a circular letterbox around a concrete uh, sort of bollard coming out of the ground and then this sort of spring going around. So it's just it's sort of just having a whole lot of fun with things like that. And um, it's they my clients have embraced all of these stories and if the public in looking at the building, they wouldn't really understand any of this story, but it's given my clients opportunity to tell, to take ownership of the story and to tell the story, which they are doing, and they're just loving doing that. And that is sort of, uh, that's the best thing that I could have happen. I just love it, love seeing it evolving. And the house hasn't quite finished yet, so there's a lot more of that going to happen. But I've already, and we sort of, I designed a seat, this half round seat, uh, onto the um, main pathway there where everyone greets him so that they can sit down in the public realm and have a conversation. Um, yeah, so that, that's been, that's a pretty good example of of what I try to do. And it's like I think, in, that's genius. I love it. And then giving the people what they want, Stan and Anne, on their yeah. busy corner. Like normally a busy corner would be a bit of a downer. It sounds exactly what Stan and Anne. Yeah, well, it's true. Okay. And, you know, there's lo lots of other levels of complexity because it is a really busy corner and to get council approval you have to sort of interpret which is the primary setback street, which is this secondary. And uh, it's actually called 123 House because the address is 123 Dalkeith Road. Dalkeith is sort of like a suburb in Perth that you'd want to be associated with. But the other road was really the front of the house. So to keep the address 123 Dalkeith Road, I had to make this ambiguous turning of the corner. So you couldn't quite tell whether it fronted one street or the other because it really fronts the other. So there's all those sorts of things going on as well. But, it, that, you know, it's all led to a really interesting outcome. Yeah. And it's like you're almost building in their own history into their new home. So they're taking their history yeah. with them. Mm, yeah, that's right. And then the other thing, so, you know, there's many layers of this. So... And the problem is, if I ever describe this, um, it's so there's too many layers to make sense for anyone to absorb it. But the the other thing that I'm sort of drawing from the suburb. So Nedlands is an older suburb of Perth, uh, where there's lots of white painted houses and a lot of terracotta tiled roofs, and um, lots of arches, and lots of fabric canopy awnings. So even in the same street, there's really fantastic examples of that. Arches are on trend at the moment, and I really try to avoid, you know, jumping on the arch bandwagon. But um, so what I've done is broken arches. I've done like a half. I've used half circle, but not in an arch form. And my thinking is that it's coming out of the suburb in terms of that sort of form. And I've used uh, this sort of rollout striped fabric awning, which is sort of can be seen in two houses in the same street that are about you know, 60, 70 years old, these houses. So those sorts of sort of connections. And I do have a terracotta roof, but it's um, white glazed. They couldn't bring themselves to do the, the terracotta, which is which is probably just as well. It looks better as an off-white anyway. Mm. Sounds stunning. We also read a quote from you that you say you won't be able to drive around Perth seeing the same building design over and over. People don't say there's another Neil County. Each sign is unique. Every client is different, mm. which is exquisite that's what i'd want from my architect any day of the week but that's like a full-on design challenge you've set yourself because absolutely it's signature not to shine through or you know tried and true methods mm. like that's like you've you're playing your own game within the game yeah and it, and it's really hard because people don't know what they're going to get yeah you're so winning start. a client over is hard because <laughs> like, no, i'll give you the same thing if you want it but you know that's not how I'm promoting myself. So it doesn't always bode well because, um, again, I'm not talking to you guys. I'm talking to people who not in our world. So, you know, that they've got to be brave if they're – but even if they're aware because the way people find you is so bizarre. Mm. Uh, I'm now just recently 
finding clients who've sought me out for what I do and what I'm projecting, which is great. But that's only very recently. I've had all sorts of people come to me for such weird reasons of connection that were not for what I was actually doing. So it's really weird how people come to you. But, yeah, the challenge is the same regardless. Mm. And you have been termed the, the complete architect, the, someone who balances the brief, buildability, functional planning, aesthetics, and, and how it all comes together. And how do you go about that process and balance all aspects and needs of the project? Yeah, well, I think we are all the result of all of our previous experiences at any time. And uh, that's what I say to students when they're doing something that they're not particularly enjoying. So well, this whatever you do is going to influence what you're doing later in life. So you might be having, and I was a brickies labourer when I was, for a couple of summers when I was studying architecture. And, you know, that was good money. That's why I was doing it. And it was stinking hot and uh, I was exhausted at the end of every day. But I learned so much. I learned the respect for a tradesperson and the knowledge that they have that I didn't have. And the you know the physicality of it, and and uh, the importance of getting the cement mix right and delivering it to the brick. You know, all of the, I learned so much that is with me to this day, because I do have a respect for the tradespeople on site, and I love that stage when I get to have dialogue with them. Because, like I said before, you're only ever aware when you're designing of the parameters at hand, and you think about it, you design something particularly or more so in architecture than the interior design aspect because it takes longer to come to fruition. So you design it and you park it and it goes oh, through all the approvals and everything and you come back to build it and you're dealing with a tradesperson. So you can't dictate that what you did with the parameters known at the time is still how it has to be done. I'm happy to engage in conversation because there's new information available and it's like, well, we'll still achieve a good outcome. We're going to slightly do it a bit differently. And that's the sort of dialogue that I really enjoy. But um, I, I guess I really enjoy all of the aspects of the process. And that's probably because I had good fortune in being exposed to all of these aspects of the process through my earlier career, which ended up I was director in a larger practice, uh, director for 10 years in that practice, and then left there to do what I'm doing now because I just wanted to immerse myself in each project rather than sort of run a project and have people working with me. I still work with people, but, you know, more doing what I want to do and taking the type of work that I'm doing, you know, where I want to take it, having more control of, of that, which is good, which is what I enjoy. Yeah. And how big is your team now? I wonder how do you fit this all in? Like how, how do you make it work? Well, it's a juggling act and I do, you know, over time I have a lot of people that I know out and about who can I can collaborate with. So I have draftspeople. I, look, I run a sort of a, a tight ship in terms of I, I don't really want to have a whole lot of staff and I don't want to carry people through the lows, which I've tried to do in the past. So I sort of work on the basis of outsourcing. So I... I hand draw, which astounds the students when they come in, but I hand draw everything and even sort of down to every detail and then share that with people working with me who turn it into an electronic drawing so that it can be shared more easily. So that gets me through the grunt of bigger bodies of information that needs to be shared with consultants and, and builders, etc. But what I normally do is continue beyond that to just do hand drawings. So when it comes to follow-up details, or, or sometimes all of the details are done by me by hand on A3 drawings and it comes a sort of a booklet of details. And I find I can respond much faster and builders seem pretty happy with the information I'm doing by hand. It's pretty clear. So that's what I like to do. I feel, And I also feel that it sort of shows in my work that I'm drawing by hand because I'm not sort of regimented about what I'm doing. That, this is a bit of self-reflection that I've had. I haven't aimed to do that. But I've looked, I've thought that recently that I think my work might actually reflect the fact that I draw by hand. Absolutely. Mm. And a flagpole of like the clients that you will attract are those possibly fellow tactile people. Because I know when you draw something by hand, you're all over every inch. You've got the pressure of the pen. Yeah. 
Also, the hand moves slower than the brain, and so the brain is annoyingly put into a lower gear and can calm down a bit, and that comes through as well. I can imagine there'd be an energy that you would attract with your energy. Mm, yeah. But, and you know, you mentioned texture, but texture is something that I really embrace, and a client of a few years ago said that they came to me because they liked my use of texture, and I suddenly thought, oh, how do I use texture? And then I thought more about that. And, oh, yeah, okay. I didn't realise that that was a point of difference, that I do very textural work. And I also think about all the senses because I'm usually dealing with acoustics. So whatever, I, particularly in residential, because you end up with lots of resilient surfaces and lots of glass. And so what can you do to absorb noise? And it makes a really big difference when you do. So that's something I sort of carry through projects. And also... You know, harking back to what I was saying before, yeah, the, the result of your experiences, um, I had a, a responsibility when I was a director of this previous practice, which I was involved in, in their interior design section. I was previously married to an interior designer uh, and uh, we set up an interior design section and then we were no longer together. So I had to sort of manage this interior design section I created. So probably for about four or five years I was doing that, you know, purely in the practice and that gave me great exposure to the world of interiors being completely responsible for it. And I know and I feel a bit guilty talking about that because I know a lot of architects can be uh, considering themselves interior designers and you see what they've done and they're definitely architects. You can tell the difference and I really hope that I'm not one of those because I'm and uh, really try not to be because you know, to be a good interior designer, I think you have to be aware of so many other things. You have to be on the ball with what's happening in the art world, what's happening in the craft world, you know, who's making things, who can make things for you, you know, bring all that world together to make a wonderful interior for someone or whether it's a, a commercial practice or residential. That's the key to making a difference and understanding materials and how they work and where to get things. There's so much complexity to it, which I do appreciate. And I don't for a minute, you know, think that I'm I'm the king of that game, but I've got a foot in the door in that world enough to bridge between architecture and, and interiors. Yeah. This podcast was made with the support of Dulux. Head to dulux.com.au forward slash colours for your insider scoop on what's new, emerging and upcoming in the wild world of colour. Explore the 2022 Dulux colour forecast colour palettes to discover the trends set to influence colour and design for the coming year. Because looking at um, your work, I think, is it the Roscammon House where you have this beautiful off-form concrete and this lovely form making but yet your interiors are so textural and the materiality really talks and you, you want to be in the space but also in the pool so it you can see that you sort of bridge that gap quite successfully yeah well that that was a wonderful project and to be honest that project is what it is because of my clients who were just fantastic they appreciated architecture and were very um, supportive of my ideas we had lots of early engagement on, you know, where we would go with the building and there's lots of to and fro dialogue there. But when we sort of settled down what we were doing, they were pretty supportive of everything I was suggesting. It was quite fantastic. So, you know, accolades to them for, for that. They got they got what they got because of their support of me. But they did start with wanting a grey concrete house. And I've said this a few times before, but, you know, that what a wonderful brief but what a scary brief for their house and I thought they'd be more powerful with a bit more balance not just um, uh, concrete so I introduced quite a lot of timber and what's amusing to me is a grey concrete house won the National Timber Award for residential a few years ago (laughs) it's a concrete house anyway I'm pretty happy with that but um, yeah and then that came through to the interiors where I was yeah, deliberately trying to be very textural. So I have a linen wallpaper, an indigo sort of coloured linen wallpaper, and then there's linen heavy fabric linen curtains and I detail the hand, expressed hand stitching on the curtain. So I'm trying to bring out the handmade and everything. And then the shapes in plan were pretty much sort of rectangular, but I always rounded a corner 
so that it had some sort of organic play or some sort of curvaceous feel to it because I was very aware that a grey concrete building could be very masculine. So I was looking always for the feminine to balance with the masculine and I tried to do that with the interior fit out. Uh, so I selected furniture that had a bit of a curve, uh, which was in theme with a bit of the curve that the building fabric was doing, and then uh, sort of rounded edges and lots of texture again. And then the the fantastic thing that I found was uh, the Masoni fabric for the living room, which was Italian-inspired flowers, which looked like Western Australian wildflowers. It was just the perfect fit. And that is, for me, just the perfect counter to the grey house, this, um, you know, curtains covered with flowers and all the colour that came out to contrast with the grey. And you've also been called the the architect that listens. How important do you think listening is to the design process and delivering a successful outcome? Oh, well, it's really important. I mean, there's plenty of designers who will you know know how it's got to be and probably try to force what what they think the project should be doing on someone Uh, you have to be strong with design but that only comes when you've listened so you need to deliver that sort of gets back to what i was saying before really i mean you need to deliver what is important to your client and you can only do that through listening so that's the first stage number one listen two deliver and then number three then share whatever the design influence has been to, to roller coaster that into something really even more fantastic. But, yeah, I think I'm the youngest of three, much younger than my older brother or sister, and I remember sort of observing lots of things in my youth, probably listening, taking it in, uh, and I think I'm probably still like that generally. I'm, I'm a bit of a listener rather than a... If there's a lot of people, I like to just sit back and listen. If it's sort of one-on-one or one-on-two, I'm happy to engage. But bigger groups of people, I don't really like to sort of be out there expressing myself. So that probably reflects in the way I work with clients. Mm. I'm learning that as I get older, I am getting quieter. And Catherine will be rubbing her ears wondering what I'm talking about. But (laughs) (laughs) I, I am partial to some chatter. But, like, when I get in big groups now, I get quieter and quieter because it's just popcorn, like, (laughs) how is this going to play out? And then watching people and then watching people when they don't think they're being watched, one of my, like, not in a creepy way, but, like, secretly. (laughs) (laughs) We'd have to ask them. But then, um, yeah, and I love that thing with the listening, like, especially with clients, I call it full body listening where you just especially over Zoom and stuff now, you have to use everything in your power to try and absorb what they're really saying. And, you know, in real life, like they'll lean forward, they lean back, they glance at the clock. You can't pick that up on Zoom as much. So, yeah, yeah, I love that listening. And I know what I know. And if I was to talk about, no, I'm talking about myself here now, but that's boring. If I go out or, you know, for an experience, I don't want to come back at the end of the night and just shared everything about me. I want to go out and come back and be informed by something new I didn't know about, which you can only do that if you're listening to what someone's saying. Yes, and you're collecting. Like It's like, you know, about yeah. I mean, just yeah. collecting. It's an education. You're being informed about all this new stuff. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That's almost one of the saddest things about the last two years. You know, we haven't been able to travel very much and sort of take in that. I think airports are so fascinating, that sort of travel journey and watching people. It's fascinating, isn't it, to see what people do, particularly in space, you know, spaces. Definitely, yeah. That's a lot of what holidays are about, people watching, yeah. You must have a pool bar with a pool lounge so you can be comfortable with the drink while you're people watching. Exactly, exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you, you went on the Dulux uh, Dialogue Tour in 2016 to London and Stockholm. Yeah. And how was that journey? You know, did that inform your process and your design approach? Uh, yeah, it was wonderful. And it was quite incredible, the timing, because yeah, I'd left where I'd been a director a few years, well, 2009 I think I started doing what I'm doing now, so it was a few years in. I left with a whole lot of work that I just put my head down and did the work. And then once that work was through, I put my head up and thought, well, what am I actually doing here? What am I standing for? And sort of looked at what I'd done and what I wanted to stand for. 
and uh, had this sort of weird realisation at about the age of whatever I was, just not quite 50, that I was the result of my father who was an artist. But how would it, why would that only dawn on me at that age? But anyway, so he was very hands-on sort of a guy. So he built our house and we dug our swimming pool in the backyard by shovel, you know, ridiculous amount of hands-on. And um, so there's sort of the construction side of things, but he was an illustrator. He was the head artist of the West Australian newspaper and did all of his art shows and things outside of work. Back in the day, they, people would go to the newspaper and they'd want a, a vision for a new building or the, the Narrows Bridge, which is our main bridge. He did an illustration of what it's going to look like. It's on the front of the paper. Um, when the Commonwealth Games were happening, he made the physical model of the running track and stadium photos of him doing it. So, you know, me experiencing his life obviously was a pretty good lead into being an architect. Um, I can't remember what the question was. I went off track there. <laughs> oh, the tour. And the- oh, the tour, sorry, the tour, yes. And so anyway, in reflecting on what I was about, I thought, well, the art world and that uh, as our earlier discussion how architecture is not just architecture like i can i want to be known for being an aspirational interior designer along with being a competent architect and that side of things with the interiors i want to involve as many creative people in projects as i can whether they're artists or sculptures or fabricators local fabricators or anyone i can bring in sort of share that love and opportunity and you know i think every project is richer if you can include more people because you get all of their goodies and their knowledge and everything sort of overlaying and so when i did the submission for the tour that's sort of how i was talking and i think that's pretty much my submission and then got the opportunity to go on the tour which just reinforced everything that i wanted to be standing for was just like how can this be happening so soon after? And then that was what the tour was experience was like. It was just um, knowledge from everywhere and it wasn't just interior design. It was fabric suppliers and fabricators. It was all sorts of industrial designers. It was incredible. And um, it really gave me a lot of confidence that my thinking was worth pursuing and gave me lots of connections and, uh, you know, met all the wonderful people that I was travelling with who are all great fun and have a lot of respect for them. So that, you know, it was all round fantastic. It's amazing how those, you know, quite, uh, well, you know, in, in a time span it's quite a small event, event but it's so, uh, it, it brings so much out of it that um, it's, it's a moment in time that um, just everything unfolds from you can see that it set your direct direction gave you confidence and off you go and you know more than a decade later you're still doing that in a way it's yeah. just a yeah yeah definitely yeah um, i can't i'm really bad with names so i can't remember we were in stockholm it was like one of the last days and we were in the office of probably the most impressive architects anyway yeah. we'd had a number of long days and dinners with the people we'd met and then some of us uh, drinks into the night and it was sort of like the end of the 10 days virtually and I remember there's a photo of me with my hands holding up my head at the desk I was super interested but I needed to support my head because I was so tired <laughs> yeah. it's gonna fall off yes yeah, that's right yeah it's quite extraordinary actually and it was all day every day because mm. we going into the night and then after all of the official stuff had finished and had dinner and everything you'd you know, still be having new experiences and talking about the day and talking about the next day. And then we had a bit of a challenge. I think one of the last days, a couple of us just uh, wanted to hit. No, it was after it finished. We had some lay days and then Matt and I went on to Copenhagen together. But um, uh, there was a whole lot of things we wanted to see. So I think we saw like 20 things in one day, just hopping in an Uber, getting out, having the experience, hopping back in the Uber. It was quite action pack sort of it wasn't a holiday it's hard work mm, yeah someone has to do it that's right we're not <laughs> jealous the uh, airport lounges give you that and you can just start to like digest everything that happened you know when you have a flat out trip and you're just itching to check in get to the boarding gate and just decompress 
well, 30,000 feet, you know, looking down on the clouds and suddenly you can just sit there and reflect and it's just this, yeah, it's an explosion mm. of your mind, oh. but actually they're little seeds, aren't they? There's nuggets in there that, you know, are just profound. Yeah. yeah and, you know, I could go and you sort of have those experiences and it sort of does fade a bit, but if I went back into my sort of library of photos from that, I could be re-inspired quite easily by just flicking through and then going off on a tangent and, you know, following something that I experienced, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you see different stuff as well when you reflect back on those photos. Or you remember, of course, the feeling of mm. bike riding by the Rhine or yeah. whatever yeah. it is. But then, And then you also look at it through the lens of being more grown up and you're like, oh, I looked at it that way. And so many years ago, I used to live in Dubai and I used to work for Emirates. So I was flying a lot. And so you, you had photos, you have all those touristy photos. And now you look back and especially through different political movements that happen, you're like, oh, okay, that's, I remember when I went to Libya and they took my passport and now Gaddafi's been overthrown. Like, yeah, yeah. that thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It just keeps yeah. going. Like you're like totally with everything. You like we're collecting it all in the mm. way, and then it's all useful. Yeah. Mm. The other thing that this, this tour reinforced was that you know you get, we get really pigeonholed in, and this is something that I was trying to break out of again. You know, I've got training as being an architect, so I was really I was trained in design, and then overlaid with you know processing, building approvals, and responsibility with engineers and consultants, whatever else, but. At the core of that is an appreciation of design and understanding of design process, which you also get if you do industrial design, if you study interior design, you know, it's we're so pigeonholed and there's so many other opportunities to explore what you can do in something other than the everyday that you're supposed to do in your profession. And that's what I love and that's what I'm trying to explore because I don't want to be pigeonholed into just building after building after building. I love doing building. I'm not saying I don't like that, but I love all the other stuff as well. So why don't I have a crack at that as well? <laughs> and I love the way that you are not scared to, you know, obviously totally engage with interiors, but also design furniture and product and, and actually, you know, the objects that go into the space as well that you're completely engaged with right down to the letterbox. It's just you're having yeah. fun with every element. Yeah, well, that's right. And now that letterbox, that's been on my to-do list for, you know, six or seven months. And I, I really didn't know what I was going to do with it and, you know, I had a few aspirational ideas and parked that and didn't feel right. So Builder said, uh, we're getting towards the pointy end of the project. They're going to miss the Christmas deadline, unfortunately. But he said, so how's that letter, letterbox going? I thought, oh, I'll just do it. So last night, that's hot off the press from last night, uh, partner went out, so I just stayed in the office and worked late. And it just came out in about three minutes. And it's like, oh. Okay, but you have actually been thinking about it for a long time. You just haven't put pen to paper and then you finally sit down and go under a bit of pressure and then it comes out. It's really interesting that. how that works. Um, and I know that's for all designers. I mean, the actual pen to paper solution can be super fast, not always, but sometimes it comes out because you have been thinking about it in the back of your mind and processed it without sort of looking at the physical on paper and then you test it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it's just a crazy idea. Mm. And I love the way it sort of ticks through in the back of your mind. It's sitting there and then you see something completely random and all of a sudden it all just falls into place. It just a little boom moment. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's especially quite often when you're doing something, you know, completely removed from work, like you're at the beach or doing something else, yeah. Yeah, and you can't tell the client that. Well, you can if once you've built that trust, but it's hard to explain, especially you know, commercial clients B two B, and they you know how and they're like, how long's that stage going to take? And but the real answer is the creative process can take three seconds or thirty years, so somewhere in between. Yeah, and if it's taking three seconds, that's only because you've been doing it for thirty years. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually so awesome. yeah. you know, it's God, and then of course you know sometimes we charge by the hour, which I find just hysterical like why not why don't we just charge by the unicorn for all that really <laughs> <means>? <laughs> yeah. well that's a good measure i'll try that yeah i hate doing hourly stuff because one you've got to record it and it always seems ridiculous how many hours you you can't charge for the actual thinking time not that you're okay. even at your desk or in your office when you're thinking so you can't charge for that time yeah mm -hmm. and you need the thirty thousand feet to look across the sun setting over those clouds like that yeah. 
critical design time. Yeah. Critical yeah. embryonic. I'll put that into the quote next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've got, I think I've got to the point in my career where I want to do things that are meaningful and not just a, a throwaway, you know, go build that, you've got some enclosure, that's what you wanted, see you later. Like if you're going to build something, make it worthwhile. And um, I really try hard to do something meaningful each time and something that hopefully will last the test of time and something that's not of the now. I mean, look, I'm not saying that I'm not influenced by the latest trends and colours and whatever else, which is hard to not be, but I don't pursue that. So I'm hoping that what I'm doing has a longer lifespan because it's not about the here and now. It's coming out of where it is and so looks like it belongs where it is. In fact, one experience I had like that, so the Ross Common House, I did a photo shoot um, which was on a very long Australia day, like 40 degrees. We started early in the morning and I was taking the last bits out of the house at about 9.30 at night, absolutely exhausted. And um, putting the last things in the car, the people, uh, the owners were moving in the next day and um, a car pulled up and they said, oh, love your new house. Where Are you just moving in? And I said, oh, no, it's not my house. I'm the architect. Oh, you're the architect. We live in Ivan Ivanov's own house. Ivan Ivanov was an architect in the yeah. 70s, 60s, 70s in Perth who did a lot of work in that area in Florida. And he said, um, we absolutely adore this house and everyone we know does and we feel like it, you know, it fits so well in this suburb. And it's like, oh, that's exactly what I needed to hear right now. And that was exactly what I was trying to achieve, a house that felt comfortable in its locality. So that was the best thing I have ever been told at the my lowest point, <laughs> which was great. Yeah. You know, you know it's worked. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And if you were to look into your future, is there a dream project that you would love to do? Is there something that, you know, you want to tick that box? Um, well, I like a dream client who uh, has faith in what I'm doing. Yeah. I do sometimes sort of uh, yearn for like a really big lump of building, like a bigger lump of sculpture to play with. I've been trying to have some influence in urban design, particularly where I live in Swanbourne, where the government's being very, state government's being pretty clumsy with infrastructure. And I've been banging on about design-led infrastructure rather than engineer-led infrastructure. Um, but that's not a project as such. I'm trying to have influence there. But um, as a project, I'd really like to do something very small with a super high spec. So you do, you know, like a Japanese box. <laughs> it could be tall. It could be a tower. It could have a really small footprint and it could be four stories high or something. And um, uh and the client wants, you know, really textural, moody, very high standard rather than massive expanses of everything. Um, and, then so, and what I'm really into at the moment is, one, trying to be sustainable with my work, um, not just saying that I am, but trying to explore that. And I find that if I introduce that concept in early conversations with my clients, they nine times out of ten, or I've got one at the moment where they're not, which is a bit annoying, but nine times out of ten, they embrace that. And you have to explain sometimes it comes with a cost, but there's ultimate benefit and whatever else. But, um, yeah, what I'm really interested in is looking at fashion. Um, and, you know, the youth, I know my daughter who's about to turn 21 and all of her friends and that sort of age group, 25 and younger probably, um, they don't buy anything new. They go to secondhand vintage shops and they do a lot of their own sewing, um, patch together different things and they're embracing that. And I think we should be doing that with buildings. So embracing the old, embracing what's there, knock down less, you know, use salvage yards more. And I think I think it'll go that way because we'll be using and recycling what we've got more. They won't be pristine new buildings all the time. There will be sometimes, but plenty of times they'll be, you know, a complex hybrid of bits and pieces that have been salvaged. I mean, that's quite an interesting thing to pursue. And when I say 
I'm interested in fashion and, and, and that side of things, but I'm interested myself in sort of stitching up old clothes. So I haven't, I've brought the bits and pieces to do it. I haven't stepped off and actually done it. I'm hoping over the summer holiday I do. Uh, otherwise, it's all talk. But at the moment, it's all talk. But what the talk is that I would sort of patch up my old jeans and maybe stitch on the inner lower leg, it's time, because as Goff said, it's time for a change of government. And, um, you know, just to have a bit of fun like that. Um, yeah. I love a sideline project. It's just a, yeah. it's a random thing, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's a passion project. Yeah, I need a few less sideline projects. <laughs> True. True. <laughs> and we're asking everyone, but, you know, your signature Dulux white, is there a colour that you always go to? Well, I should have an answer for that. Not, well, look, I, not really, because I, I try to do project specific. I don't really carry a colour through. I must say that... Uh, it's probably not the name of the Dulux colour, but an indigo sort of depth of blue is a wonderful colour to trade off with other things for a darker, moody room. And um, I don't have a colour that I sort of, um, you know, land everything on. There's various whites that you sort of go to. but um, And I yeah. love it. It's not, a, it's not a white that you go to. It's a dark that you go to. I think that's yeah. yeah, well, that's a yeah, good point. <laughs> Not in the house, not in the one, two, three houses. Everything's light in that one. Yeah. Yeah, but that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Check myself on that. <laughs> <laughs> and is there any sort of fresh or new talent out there, you know, particularly in WA, any, have you got your eye on anyone emerging as an artist or designer? Well, I've got well, furniture makers um, that uh, are around and have dealings with. I mean, not so much emerging, but Nathan Day, who's based in, out of Bustleton, is a wonderful um, furniture maker and he's making some great furniture for all sorts of designers in Perth. Jack Flanagan, who's designing a whole lot of incredible things and um, getting all that fabricated, he's a pretty exciting young guy who's definitely one to watch. And um, Aidan Sykes is another uh, furniture maker who's um, you know, up and coming and uh, it seems to be very vibrant sort of custom market in getting things built rather than just going to catalogues and getting things imported. So, yeah, I think it's all pretty healthy. Well, thank you so much, Neil, for your time. It's been a real insight into your work and practice. It's been a shot in the arm. Thank you. You have no idea the word, like, I know this is strange to say, but the weather here is so miserable. And you are, and you with your shirt and your fabulous hair <laughs> at the Natural Museum, you've been like a shot in the arm. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad I could uh, help with the dreary day. 